take God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're in a series entitled, Follow Me. And in this series, we're walking through Jesus' teachings on Torah in Matthew 5 through 7. Last week, we did discussed the fact that Matthew's purpose for writing his gospel is really twofold. First of all, he wants to show us that Jesus Christ, who's in the line of David, uh, is the promised Messiah. And one of the unique things we find about Matthew's gospel is that Matthew's gospel includes many references to the Old Testament for the purpose of showing the link between these Old Testament prophecies and Jesus being the fulfillment of those prophecies. And one of the things we see is that in Matthew's gospel, you have more Old Testament references than the other three gospels, Matthew, um, Mark, Luke, and John combined. But the second purpose that Matthew has, and we talked about this last week, we saw it as the crowds were coming to him, and that is that Matthew wants to show that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all people, not just the Jews. And so in our text, what we find as we go there is that we find that Jesus is a new king, bringing a new kingdom open to all who will trust and follow him as Lord and Savior. And today's Bible passage, Jesus shares his plan to be the hope of the world through his followers. I want us to begin the reading this morning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. We're going to read two verses there, and then we'll continue in just a moment. But in Matthew 5, 11, we read this. You're blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that's how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Fathers, I've uh, set before your word and in prayer this week, thinking about um, not just this moment, but what this text has meant to me as I've been studying it. I've been so humble in thinking that I was chosen to receive salvation and how you came so that we could all know you as Savior and Lord, and what a wonderful gift that is. But also, Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us that while salvation is a free gift, discipleship is not a free ride. Forgive us when we get caught up doing our own thing. Cleanse us through the washing of the water of the word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked at the Beatitudes in Luke chapter 5, verses 3 through 10. And as we looked at that passage, we noticed that immediately preceding the giving of that lesson, that Jesus had many people who were coming to him, and they were coming from various regions. Word about Jesus was spreading everywhere. Uh, He's now relocated to Capernaum, which is in northern Israel off the Sea of Galilee. And the Scripture tells us in Matthew chapter 4, toward the end of the chapter, you remember 
We read that they were coming to him from Syria, which is to the north. That's beyond Israel's border. They were also coming to him from the Decapolis to the east, which is also beyond Israel's border. And then they were coming from all points, north, south, east, and west in Israel. And the interesting thing is, is this, this is an odd collection of people. I mean, this is normally not a group of people who would choose to be around one another. And so they don't really, in some instances, even like each other. And his disciples are looking at this crowd of people that's just uh, very unlike one another and in many instances don't like each other. And they're thinking to themselves, what's going on here? And then Jesus calls his disciples to himself. And we read this in Matthew 5, 1 and 2. He calls his disciples to himself, realizing what they're thinking as they're looking on this massive crowd. And he sits down, and the Scripture tells us what in Matthew 5, 1 and 2. He sits, he sits down with his disciples, and he begins to teach them. And so what we have in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 are actually Matthew's collection of the teachings of Jesus, and it's not everything Jesus taught. But the interesting thing is, as we go through this sermon in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, what we find is that virtually everything Jesus taught can be stacked up in rows underneath the things that are taught here in these chapters. So this morning, as we're looking at this, we realize that one of the things that we see is that when we left off in the Beatitudes, the last Beatitude in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus is talking about persecution. He's saying, God favors those who are uh, uh, poor in spirit. God favors those who mourn. Uh, God favors those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then toward the back end of the Beatitudes, as he talks to his disciples, he says, and God favors those who minister to those who mourn, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But then he says in that 10th verse, in that last Beatitude, he says, but those who minister to them will be persecuted. Now, I don't know if you were paying attention, but this morning when I read verses 11 and 12, What's the theme in verses 11 and 12? It's persecution. And I don't know about you, but I'm thinking to myself, okay, we get it. <laughs> He's just talked about persecution in verse 10. And then it seems to me, as I was reading it, it seems to me in verses 11 and 12, Jesus is repeating himself. I mean, it's almost exactly the same thing that he said in verse 10. And I started thinking to myself, why would he repeat himself? And curiosity got the best of me. So what I had to do was I said, maybe I missed something. And here's what I did. I went back and I reread verses 1 through 10, particularly verses 3 through 10. And sure enough, I had missed something. And here's what I saw. He talks about persecution in verse 10, then he repeats it in verses 11 and 12. And the difference lies in the pronouns which are used. Go back and look at verse 4, verse 6, verse 10. What is the pronoun that he uses as he's 
pronouncing these beatitudes. Blessed are those. Blessed are those. Blessed are those. This is a third person pronoun. But when you go to verses 11 and 12, he changes the pronoun to second person. What's Jesus doing here? He's bringing the message closer and closer to his disciples. He's no longer talking about those impersonal, those out there. He's talking about, I'm talking about you. And here's what he's saying. If you embrace this message that I'm proclaiming to you, as all these people are coming to me, if you embrace the message that there's a new king and a new kingdom, then what's going to happen is you're going to experience some resistance. Uh, You see all these people out here Not everybody's on board with this. In fact, some people think they know what the kingdom is about. They have hints. They have their own mind made up already of what kingdom is. And if you go around and you start teaching them about this new kingdom and this new king, then what's going to happen is people aren't going to understand it. But you have to share it and you have to show it. So that they do get my message. And when they see it, as you show it to them and as they hear it from you, they're going to glorify God for it. And though you'll be persecuted, I want to tell you, it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it because your reward is great in heaven. And now reading on, we notice in verses 13 through 16, Jesus continues his teaching. And what does he say there in verse 13? He says this, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand that gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. For Christians, being always precedes doing. We're human beings, not human doings. And before Jesus said a word about what his disciples are to do, he spoke of what his disciples are to be in relationship to the world around them. And the effectiveness of a disciple rests on the self-evident difference from those around them. In these verses, Jesus defines discipleship. And there are three things I'm going to 
speak to you about this morning, and they're not my words, my thoughts. These are the words of Jesus. But to wrap your arms around what Jesus is saying here, Jesus is defining discipleship for us, and there are three things He's going to say to us. First of all, He gives us a description of discipleship. Secondly, He's going to warn us of a danger in discipleship. And thirdly, what's He going to do? He's going to talk to us about our duty in discipleship. So let's look at that first one. Jesus gives us a description of discipleship in verses 13, 14, and 15. Now what Jesus would do is that he didn't waste uh, uh, those things that were around him that could serve to be used to teach a, a biblical truth. In fact, he often used the simplest Uh, physical elements that were around him and would point to them and he would teach the most profound spiritual truths through using the simplest objects. And here, what does he use? He uses the objects of salt and light to teach his lesson. Now, both salt and light are indispensable, but as we think about salt and light, they both exercise their properties very differently from one another. So these two elements that Jesus speaks of here Illustrate the properties of discipleship. Now, salt, as we know, has many uses. But we need look no further than the Scripture to find out what some of those uses are. And salt is used in many different ways in the Old Testament. I want to just point out three of them. There are many, and one is more prominent than the others. But among us many uses that are mentioned in the Old Testament, I went back, I looked at Exodus 30, verse 35, and 2 Kings 2, 21. Just jot down the verses. And I noticed there that it was used as a purifying agent. And then I turned over to Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, and I noticed that salt was used as a seasoning. We're familiar with that. We have a salt shaker on the table. Then in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 4, I noticed that it was used to prevent putrefaction, and that's a, I always want to say putrefaction, I don't know what I want to say. (laughs) What I'd like to do is just move on, not say it again. (laughs) I never had trouble saying it until I got up here, but uh, uh, anyway, you want to trade places, anybody come up here? (laughs) Uh, So salt, though, as we know, as an element that Jesus points to, It has a hidden influence. It's working, but oftentimes you don't see how it's working, yet it's penetrating and it's making a difference in the situation. Then he points to light in verse 14. And of course, we know light provides illumination and it has a guiding influence. It's not a secret influence, but it is a guiding influence. Light implies the prevention of darkness, the prevention of death. So unlike salt, which has a secret influence, light, on the other hand, has a very open, manifest influence. Salt quietly infiltrates, whereas light illuminates, obviously, the preservation of life anywhere depends upon Christian discipleship. Despite all the world's boasting about Enlightenment, the only saving light on earth is in disciples. Without you, without you, your own sphere 
of influence will know death and darkness. These two elements illustrate the properties of discipleship, but these two elements illustrate the persons of discipleship as well. Jesus uses these two elements to talk about personal character. He doesn't say, you have light. He's not talking about what a Christian does, has, or passes on. He's speaking about what a Christian is. This is an exclusive function of Christians. You and you alone are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. Only you as you are and where you are preserve and illumine. It's also an inclusive function of Christians. Oh, uh, an inclusive function of being a Christian. And by that what he means is you, all of you. No one is excluded if he, she is a disciple of Jesus. But these two elements, salt and light, clearly state the place of discipleship. And what is the place mentioned in verses 13 and 14? The earth, the world. Discipleship doesn't refer primarily to what we do in the church. He's not here calling for a holy huddle of monastic saints. It's what believers are in the non-Christian world that determines whether we are disciples at all. So Jesus describes discipleship. And along with that description, he warns of a danger in discipleship. Also looking at verses 13 through 15, the danger is a disciple may become like a savorless like savorless salt or like a lusterless light. Salt, Jesus says, can lose its taste. Now, again, he's borrowing from a natural element with which his audience is very familiar. And so he is speaking to them, and as he speaks to them, he speaks about the passive loss of discipleship. Pure salt, as a matter of fact, retains its flavor. It can't lose its effectiveness, but the salt that is common in the Dead Sea area is mixed with gypsum and some other elements, and what happens is, is it becomes contaminated, and it's not good for seasoning. It's not good for preservation. It loses some of its qualities, some of its properties, and so what happens is that even in Israel, there are some ingredients that are added to salt for the purpose of being used elsewhere. And when these ingredients are added to the salt, the salt becomes referred to as this uh, leached out salt. You know what leeches do. They suck the blood out of things. 
it becomes what's known as leached out salt. And leached out salt is only good for one purpose, being thrown out. And Israel, where it was used, was it was used to be sprinkled along the pathways to kill off the vegetation to make sure that the pathway remained open and well marked. What does question Jesus ask? Look at it. Verse 13, Jesus says, Now if the salt loses its taste, how can it be salty again? Jesus says the loss is irrecoverable. There is no salt for salt. Salt can salt everything but salt. Perk up, Christian. This is a terrible but realistic warning. A person can totally and irrevocably lose discipleship. Jesus says such a loss makes you impossible. Saltless salt is useless on the table and ruins the soil. A savorless saint becomes useless to the church and the world. Salt can lose its taste. And then he says in verse 15 that a light can be hidden. What he describes in verse 15, of course, is a household absurdity. No one, he says, lights an oil lamp and puts it under a ceramic grain measure. So what he's giving us here is he's giving us a warning about the active loss of discipleship, an intentional act, the purposeful hiding of Christian witness. What we need to hear from Jesus this morning is that He never warned against false dangers. Christian, beware. And then Jesus points to our duty in discipleship in verse 16. Jesus says we're to be conspicuous as Christians. He says, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works. And this doesn't mean the theatrical religion that Jesus detests in his teachings as he points to the Pharisees and says they love to be seen for doing this and seen that and praised in the marketplace. He's not talking about that. What he's talking about is that we should obviously be who we are in every situation. And you remember earlier he made this statement, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You remember that? What Jesus does here is he, in one brief statement, what he does is he takes two very familiar pictures and he marries those two together to drive home his point. 
He combines a city set on a hill and a light shining before others. And with that, Jesus gives us a clear picture of discipleship. Now we're going to go back to school for just a second. In archaeology, a tell, T-E-L-L, is a large hill. Now I want you to take that definition. Are you with me? Grab that definition. Go ahead, reach out and grab it. Now set it right over here on the shelf beside you. Because in just a moment we're going to come back to it. And I want it to be right there nearby where you can just grab it and bring it right back in. In biblical times, when a city was built, there were certain requirements. And those who built the city had to make sure, it had to be built in a particular place, because those who built the city built it where it was close to certain resources. Had to be near water. Be good for it to be close to good soil for farmland. Be nice if it had some sort of natural barrier that could help for protection. It had to be a place where there was commerce. Now, these are just a few of those common things that people looked for before they located or built a city. I mean, you couldn't just, when a city was destroyed, you couldn't just pick up and rebuild the city anywhere, because why? You had to have particular resources. And so when a city was destroyed and a new city was built, they didn't just move off to another location. You know what they did? They piled up dirt. And a new city was built on top of an old city. Are you with me? Now take your hand and reach over there and grab that definition and bring it back in. Archaeologists have discovered tells, large hills, where dirt was piled up and a new city was built on top of another city. And in some instances, multiple cities were built layer upon layer upon layer so that what you had is one city with another built on top of it with another built on top of it so that over time, what do you have? A city on a hill. Now, a city's class system was also built into the city. The rich lived in the interior of the city. That was the safest place. The middle class lived in the walls of the city. And just maybe the best way for me to describe that to you is that it was it was an apartment-like setup in the walls of the city. This is where the middle class lived. 
And then the lower middle class lived in the surrounding villages around the city. So they were situated outside the walls. They didn't have the protection of those who lived inside the walls. But they were close enough to the city and they supported the city's commerce. So they were valuable as well. Now a city has to have a place for what? Trash and sewage, right? I mean, not much has changed in 2,000 years. And the poor were driven to the town dump because it was in the town dump where they could lay access to all of those resources that had been expended and in some instances not totally used up but tossed out and placed in the dump and they could get to those resources. Now the plumbing for the city ran through a sewage line and for sewage to be handled effectively it depends upon gravity And because farmland was precious, the city didn't want to waste farmland. And so what did they do? They built the sewage where it would run by gravity downhill. And where did it run? Into the trash dump. Now the trash would be burned. And so that what you had, the effect was that you sort of had a continual smoldering fire that never went out. Now the poor lived near the dump because they had access, they, they understood that there's people inside those walls, they've got more than enough. And they don't use everything they have And so we can lay hold of that here at the dump, but also right outside in that area, by being close to there, they knew that the city's gates, those different gates, were a place where the poor could go and occasionally receive a leftover bowl of this or an unused bottle of that. It became a place of pity and compassion. And so... What I want you to see is that for the poor, the city became a place of hope. Now, suppose it's nighttime. Suppose you're poor. Suppose you're wandering through the countryside. Jesus walked with his disciples everywhere. Suppose you're walking through the countryside and you're looking for that place of hope. You're looking for that city set on a hill that at nighttime looks like a candle, a big light. Because that's a place of provision. That's a place of rest for you. 
Jesus connects these two ideas to give us a clear picture of a disciple's duty. Jesus plans on being the hope of the world through disciples. You remember John's gospel gives us those I am statements of Jesus? You remember in John chapter 7 verse 12 where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. You know what he says two chapters later in John chapter 9? Listen, here's what he says. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now stick with me. We're tracking here in a direction. When we get over to John chapter 20, Jesus has been crucified. He's been raised from the dead, but he has not yet ascended to the Father, and he appears to his disciples, and listen to what he says. As the Father sent me, I send you. And he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying those who are poor in spirit, those who are mourning, those who are humble, those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, those who are in spiritual need and have physical need are going to be looking to you. And they're going to be looking to you And you're going to get to show the world mercy and peace, a pure heart. You're going to get to show them what righteousness looks like. And people are going to see your good works and they're going to glorify your Father in heaven. Friends, the point of Jesus' teaching is Jesus is looking for partners. And what he does is he puts his people, that's you and me, he puts us at the crossroads. He redeems us so that he can put us on display in the world. Now let me ask you this question. Because I've been asking myself this question all week. When people look at me, when people look at you, will they hear the gospel message? Will they receive the sustenance, the compassion, the mercy, and justice that Jesus wants them to experience? Because you know what, disciple? You are a city on a hill. 
Jesus' plan is to be the hope of the world through his disciples. So let your light shine. Let's pray. Lord, your lessons are simple, and you made it that way so that it could be easily understood. The lesson is so profound, so deep, that we realize the things that we hear you saying to us this morning are things that we could chew on for a lifetime. And not exhaust it. In fact, the longer we live, we don't outgrow this message. It just becomes more important to us as your followers. And so today, Lord Jesus, thank you for that invitation you give to us to follow you. And there's a young person here today, or a parent, or... a mom, a dad, single adult, Lord, who is looking for that hope that is only found in Jesus. Lord, may we be that hope for those around us who are looking for you on display. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us enough to to stick with us, to come to live inside us, to not call us to do things that we could ever do on our own, but to absolutely have to depend upon your spirits working in us to be all you intended us to be. Thank you, Jesus, you thought ahead of everything that God the Father saw. We would need a Savior, that we couldn't earn salvation that we would need the Spirit to be able to understand the truths that you want to teach us and the power to be able to live it out. And yet we have been given all of that. So again, Lord, I go back to my opening prayer. While salvation is a free gift, discipleship is not a free ride. And I ask you to forgive me when I get caught up in doing my own thing. And I ask you again to wash me with the water of the word. To cleanse me. So that the crossroads of life In the real world, people can meet you and glorify my Father in heaven. Quietly, may we stand where we are as we continue to respond to God. In the spirit of prayer, would you just continue in that place where you are right now? And I want you to do something. I want you to go back in that message in your own mind. I want you to think of that 
one particular line that spoke to you. And then I want you to talk to God about that. I want you to say, Lord Jesus, help me to live this out in my life. Go there right now. That one thing God said to you that you know you can act on and for you not to act on it would be a serious act of disobedience to what God has called you to do and be.